นโมทัสสะภะคะวะทูอะระหะทูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะทูอะระหะทูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะทูอะระหะทูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดัมมังสังขังนามสามิเรื่องนี้ถูกตอบมาที่เรื่องที่ผ่านมาเมื่อวานที่แล้วที่บอกว่าคุณสามารถอธิบายเพิ่มเติมเกี่ยวกับเรื่องของการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระราชานุญาตและการเจริญพระ
not just to a Buddha image, well, that was one thing, because, you know, I figured, well, that's just a lump of metal, doesn't know what's going on anyway. Yeah. But another person, this is uh, bowing to another person, that I found very difficult, especially if they were a Westerner, you know, even an Asian who didn't know what was going on in my mind. It was easier. But when it was a Westerner who I figured didn't know what was going on in my mind, I found that very difficult. But when I reached the point where I was able to bow, something on a deeper level, something in my heart, really loved that. I felt being able to do the ritual um, was in a way liberating. It was, it was in freedom. And I, when I was locked into my idea of how I should be, then all I did was just suffer. You know, I, I, was, I, was, I was fixed, I was rigid. And so my view, my attitude towards the rituals was one of a fixed opinion. Now, whether the rituals were useful or not useful, I wasn't even in a position to be able to reflect on that because I was so attached to the idea that it was wrong. And so however we pick up rituals... You know, it's, it's really, that's the point. It's the mindfulness, it's the understanding that determines it. And so when I said that uh, rituals, you know, the resistance might be an obstruction, it might not be an obstruction, it depends. I mean, it could be a healthy kind of skepticism. You know, it's good to be skeptical when you know, come across these things, you know, beginning just to do it because everybody's doing it, you know. We may be coming from a, a place of weakness. We may be coming from a place of strength. It depends. Some of you might remember when we used to have on a Sunday night a tradition of uh, taking the five precepts, the refuges and precepts every Sunday night. And uh, it became clear to me that when new people came along to the puja here and joined in, who didn't understand what the refuges and precepts were about, they were forced into a position of either having to go along with it because they didn't want to feel left out or to look like they were being a bit of a piker or whatever, um, or they just sat there rigid, refusing to go along with it. It was an uncomfortable thing. And, and so I thought, well, rather than uh, putting people in that position, we'll stop doing the refuges and precepts as a ritual in the, every Sunday like that. I met with some uh, resistance from people who were rather attached to doing the refuges and precepts every Sunday night. But it's how we use them, I think, is important, and the understanding that we have uh, about them that determines whether they're going to be useful or not. Personally, I, these days I love them. And um, all sorts of rituals. Actually, the older I get, the more I seem to enjoy rituals. And Mother's Day, I always make a, you know, enjoy Mother's Day. In New Zealand, we observe it the same as the Americans, and the um, same day as, uh, as the Americans in May. And birthdays, of course, I think they're a marvellous idea, today being my birthday. <laughs> and I'd like to take this opportunity to say thank you to all the uh, generous gifts and um, cards and uh, messages that came my way. I feel very touched and, and grateful. And uh, birthdays are, also, you know, it is a tradition, it's a, it's a convention, or it's a ritual. Not, you know, I was talking to Tanyana uh, Moli about in Serbia what they do on birthdays, and it's somewhat different from what they do in this country. Or in Thailand, they're looking at some photographs uh, recently of somebody I know well who 
on her birthday in Thailand, every, every time it's her birthday, what she does, she goes to the orphanage for handicapped, disabled children and spends the day feeding and looking after these children. That's, you know, that's what she does. And that's very much in keeping with the Thai tradition. Now, I don't think in England that would be the first thought for people on their birthday. Shall I go to the disabled orphanage to feed the children? Um, it's a, just a very different understanding of, um, of that particular ritual. And so with using rituals, we need to be flexible. The, um, the meaning of the rituals changes. You know, like um, if we are too rigid with, with the rituals, well, then they become, they become a problem. Like you, in Thailand, you, when you light the candles and incense, you, you always light, apparently, you always light the left-hand candle first before you light the right-hand candle. I didn't know this. In fact, I might have even got this wrong. Nobody ever taught me this. And you also always light three sticks of incense. And this is a funeral, and then you light one. And so, but in this country, always lighting three sticks of incense, well, the paintwork gets dirty very quick. And, you know, I think, well, it's an interesting ritual if that's meaningful to you, but quite frankly, I'm just not willing to go along with it. And so we, we light one stick of incense here. But uh, I have seen how much this can upset people. But we need to be willing, as we work with rituals, just to, you know, be flexible, because they change. You know, what does bowing mean? Now, when we bow, um, so speaking to somebody who came to see me yesterday, they've, they've been a Buddhist for a while, and they said, well, I still don't know why we bow three times. And uh, sometimes it's, it's actually not necessary to know, but sometimes it helps, and particularly because as Westerners we have pretty sophisticated conceptualizing of the way things are, and it means a lot to us you know, to have an understanding, so it can really help. And so uh, Ajahn Chah was very good with this. He, he used to you know, give us a sort of framework, if you like, around these things. So he didn't just say, well, just do it, but that he taught that bowing three times was you bow three times, one for the Buddha, one for the Dhamma, one for the Sangha. And, and he said, actually, you're also conceited. You should bow six times. And so in Thailand, we used to have to bow six times. Yeah, these rituals change their meaning through time. And uh, I was reading about uh, I was reading about birthdays and and the uh, origin of, of birthdays. It seems like it wasn't. You know, it was a, there was a time when when birthdays were not celebrated. You know, for the first, I think it was the up until the fourth century. The Christians refused to observe birthdays. And still, even these days, there's um, the Jehovah's Witness, I think, and uh, various fundamentalist groups refuse to observe birthdays because in the Bible there's only two references to birthdays, and they were both heathens. And so it's considered as a, as a heathen thing. In fact, it probably is a heathen thing in the, in the terms of how that word is used because it seems to be something to do with... Um, that uh, people believe that around your birthday, then your guardian spirit, you're very susceptible to your guardian spirit. And so when you, I think they probably used to have fires or something, but certainly the, the candles on the cake is about sending a message up to your guardian spirit. Well, that's how it used to be. These days, of course, well, you know, we blow the candles out and we, we make a wish. Um, well, I didn't have any candles on my cake today, but um, that's all right. I, I don't mind. 
Um, I had my photo on a cake, which was pretty weird, quite frankly. <laughs> that was very odd. Well, I cut off the head just so nobody else could do it. <laughs> and uh, and Chris, birthday cakes, apparently. I read that um, the, uh, the modern Western introduction of birthday cakes was from Germany, apparently. There was... Um, and they used to make them out of sourdough. And they were, they were the shape of the, the, the baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes. But um, the, <laughs> the original, it seems even further back, the Romans and the Greeks had, had birthday cakes as well. And they were made out of olive oil and cheese and, and honey and, and things, which sounds a lot more interesting. But uh, so these traditions change. Um, I mean, some people are probably surprised to think that we even observe birthdays in Buddhist monasteries. And um, I think this morning the youngest Anagarika in the monastery was a little bit taken aback by, by the birthday breakfast this morning, which wasn't our average morning of porridge. And uh, <laughs> it was quite phenomenal, actually, and uh, very much appreciated, whoever offered it. I remember in Thailand in the early days... Uh, when we first started Wat Nana Chat, there was um, the food was very, very modest in those. They're very, very modest. I can't emphasise how modest it was. Actually, and we're very grateful for what the local villagers brought us. But you know, if you had a you know a banana in your bowl, you were very lucky. You were very pleased about it, and it was a very simple food. But but on your birthday, this tradition started up, whereby there were two plates. From each end of the line, we'd sit for you know we'd sit in a line for having our meal, and two plates would start at each end of the line, and they would come down, and they would end up with you wherever you were, and filled up with everybody would take the best thing out of their bowl to put on the on this tray, and so you know you got two trays full of everybody's goodies. It was such a sweet thing. It was just kind of a little tradition that started up, you know, celebration. That's birthdays. Rich birthdays are a way of, of actually, you know, saying I care about you, and that's what rituals can do. Uh, linear, logical, left brain expression is not always the same. Ritual language functions in a different way. I, uh, I remember one of these birthday occasions when, when uh, it was my birthday, 16th of September, and these two trays came down, came down the line. And the only thing in your bowl that was vaguely interesting were these pieces of, um, of toffee, which even in the northeast of Thailand in its years of, of incredible poverty in those days, they still managed to make these uh, very hard bits of boiled sugar with peanuts in, which you know, were very, very yummy. And, uh, and I got two trays full of everybody's peanut toffee slab. And I put them all in my bowl with great appreciation. I think there was about, um, I think it was about 14, 14 slabs. And um, I, was, I remember I was on to number 11. <laughs> when it occurred to me, it occurred to me that... Um, you know, maybe I shouldn't eat them all. Maybe, you know, in Thailand, it's, it's, it's interesting. They don't, they don't have this tradition of getting presents on your birthday. It's, it's different. It's, a, it's making merit, which is actually you do merit by giving. And, and so, you know, people will do things like Ajahn Buddha Dasa used to always fast on his birthday and, or going to feed the orphanage. You know, this is a normal thing to do there. And, and so it occurred to me, well, for whatever reason, I thought maybe I shouldn't eat all these, you know, up to number 11 and, and so, and, uh, well, one more. And so I had number 12, and, 
And I said, well, it's really a big good idea to just leave one. And then I come and mind going and say, oh, you're just idealizing, you know, just don't be sitting. So I ate the last one as well and snapped my denture plate, smacked right down the middle. And there I was. I didn't have any dentures. I couldn't eat the rest of the meal, which was a bit of a, a sort of ritual humiliation, really. Uh, rituals are also good for humiliation. It's, it's what happens with the English rugby team at the moment. Uh, sorry to mention it. Um, of course, the All Blacks might be cruising for a bruising themselves. <clears throat> They've done it in the past. Ritual humiliation has got a place. But anyway, ritual language, uh, it cuts deeper. I think this is, this is the point. This is one of the things I'd like to say in this consideration of the place of rituals, that it's not lineological stuff. And we're, we're just not educated in it. You know, like in my experience when I first came across bowing, so it just, I couldn't see the point. Now, in other times, people would have been brought up with a more subtle sensitivity towards the time and place of rituals and, and could sense the value of them. And, uh, and yet, you know, we, we don't often. We, it's just our rational mind. Uh, takes over. Uh, somebody came to see me a, a couple of days ago and, and was, was puzzled and saying, he said, you know, I've got a very rational brain and I'm, you know, I'm very practical, I'm very down-to-earth sort of fellow, but I've been a Buddhist for many years. And he said, my mind won't let go of these ideas of Mara and Devas and things. You know, all this Buddhists speak about Mara and Devas and, you know, I can't see why basically I feel a real fondness for this terminology. I can't let go of it. Well, it immediately occurred to me, and what I suggested to this guy was that it's because you know, sometimes you, know, you trying to understand things with the rational mind just doesn't take us so deep. You know, and that's what symbols and rituals, they work in a different way. When, when we bow, it's like lowering ourselves in front of that which symbolizes perfection. Now, I can say, well, I really trust in the Buddha. I think the Dhamma is marvelous and the Sangha is absolutely fabulous and, and, you know, a very good idea, the triple gem, and then get around all cocky and conceited and arrogant, you know, with my chest puffed out and my head held high. But when, when I actually bow down and put my head down low in front of this image, which for me represents a human being who realized the state of complete, perfect, absolute freedom from green aversion and delusion. There wasn't a hint of any possibility of ignorance and conceit to arise again. When, when this bo- whole body-mind bows down in front of that, well, then there's a different message. That activity, that willingness to bow, communicates something to this being. Yes, it's an ongoing communication with the different dimensions of myself. Yes, we can study the texts and we can have all sorts of information and, and, and all sorts of confidence and conceptual understanding, but the capacity to really let go of ourselves is something else. So how to let go, that's the spirit. That's the spirit of all the forms, all the forms, all the rituals, all the conventions. Those are the outer forms. But what's the spirit? The forms are there to serve the spirit. When in religions or organizations or associations or cultures it goes the other way around and the spirit has to serve form, well, I think, well, that form's, you know, past its use-by date, basically. We should 
recycle it. But forms are there to serve spirit. You know, if I hadn't the, had the form of this bhikkhu life, which, two, two, what is it, 33 years, something like that, um, I think something the 23rd of, of June, I think, um, the monks were talking this morning about celebrating my ordination birthday as well as my physical birthday, but I think it was just because they wanted to have a yummy breakfast twice a year. But um, So whatever it was, something like 23rd of June, uh, 33 years ago, I'm very fortunate and very grateful to have received Upasampada from my preceptor Ajahn Chah. And from that point onwards, I've been training in this form, and believe me, there are many times, many, many times, if it hadn't been for the form, I'd have given up. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. Not because I'm not interested in Dhamma, but just because, yeah, it's just the force of, of ignorance is so strong in the whole body-mind. The whole nervous system is conditioned by past ignorance. Thinking and and acting based out of unawareness. This whole being is conditioned by ignorance. And to go against that is really, really hard work. We all know that. And yet there's this form, this ordination process that you go through, the ritual. You, those of you that have seen it take place, we've been doing it for two and a half thousand years. It forms a kind of a container. It gives you a sense of, of safety. You, you're held and protected in this form you know, Chai used to say, oh, it takes 20 minutes to ordain a monk, you know, but then it takes, you know, 10 years before they're trained. You know, you've got to look after these guys for 10 years. So don't think ordaining somebody is, is the finish of the process, you know. You know. Just because we've got a robe on doesn't make you a monk or a nun. The form is not the point. The form is there to serve the spirit, and the spirit is the spirit of commitment. How do I manage to stay with this? Yeah, and that's the same with, with bowing, with chanting, you know, with the other rituals that we do. These are ways of building this container. Or the ritual of marriage. You know, those you householders, you, know, you meet somebody and there's a little magic takes place where you feel there's something really special that you share together and, and we call it love and it's mutual and you uh, get to the point where you say, well, we want to share this project of life together. And, well, many times um, I've observed, I haven't experienced it, uh, not in this lifetime, but uh, many times I've observed that uh, this, uh, this feeling of uh, mutuality uh, doesn't last. And after a few years of the absolute passionate, enthusiastic belief that we're in this for life and we're going to do this together, it fades out, or at least it becomes obscured. And if it wasn't for the container of the commitment, the ritualized commitment, then uh, I'm absolutely sure that a lot of these people wouldn't have worked through um, the, uh, the difficulty and deepened in the relationship. And now, I know some people will, will say that marriage is you know, just remnants of an abusive patriarchal system, and there might well be something in that. But personally, I feel there's something a lot more to it as well, that it's, 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 it's to do with building this container so that the pressure can build up. And with the, when the pressure builds up, if there's a good, solid container, and the container is trust, if you don't take this ritual seriously, 
You know, if you don't really mean the ritual, well, then it doesn't work. Yeah, so if there is a real, sincere, mindful appreciation of the ritual, well, then you can build up the sense of trust, commitment, and it does give a feeling of safety. And within that containment, then you can take a lot of pressure. And that's when the pressure is energy. And for us in the, uh, the monastic life, uh, that uh, pressure, of course, is used for transformation. Yeah, you, when you encounter the forces of ignorance, the habits of my way, you know, which come up all the time, you know, after 33 years, I still don't get my way and I still don't like it. But what has increased, thank goodness, is the willingness to actually receive the free energy that comes when I don't get my way. All this passion flares up and there's this energy available for transformation. That's the point of the container. That's the point of the training. You know, frustration, as Fritz Perls, who's great in his own way, once said, you know, frustration is the therapy. Even Fritz Perls had a kind of Buddhist leaning to him. So, and also, in, whether as householders or as monks and nuns, the, uh, the, 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 the intelligence around skillful use of rituals is that it, it strengthens us and enables us to meet the challenge more ably, like the ritual commitment to the refuges and precepts, which is always, I always find it a, a truly beautiful thing, you know, when somebody's taking the five precepts, the eight precepts, the ten precepts, the 227 precepts, when anybody gets to the point where they feel they want to make this ritual statement of commitment to the precepts, personally, I, I get a rush off it because the spirit behind that is this interest and willingness in deepening practice. Because we all know that by committing to the refuges and precepts, it's going to, yes, it's going to give us something, but it's also going to be difficult. It's going to increase the struggle on some level. But behind that is the understanding that this, this is a worthwhile struggle. You know, there are two types of struggle in life. There's one type of struggle that leads to more struggle, and another type of struggle that leads to freedom from struggle. And making a commitment to the refuges and precepts when it's a mindful and wise commitment, well, it's based on this, this recognition that you know, we can engage our struggle and our difficulty in life in a way that actually takes that free energy, that passionate resistance to not getting my way, and embraces it in a way which takes us to letting go. Because we need energy. You know, the habits, the structures of ignorance are strong. Now, how are we going to transform those structures? Well, we need energy. So the rituals can provide this containment, and, but uh, how we use them also determines whether they're going to really work for us. You know, we have to be flexible, but not so flexible that we're, we're being downright casual about them. You know, we need to treat them with respect. Uh, here we have uh, a, a convention that uh, whenever you come into the Dhamma Hall here, any time of year, whatever it is, you come into the hall, if you've got your hat on, you take your hat off. Well, certainly, as we all do, come in, and you take your shoes off. Now, why do you do that? You know, your feet get cold. Maybe you've got holes in your socks. You know, maybe, <laughs> maybe your socks even stink. I mean, <laughs> with the greatest respect. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, why do we take our shoes off? Why do we take our shoes off? Because you say, oh, well, it's an Asian ritual. You know, if you're Buddhist, you've got to do it. 
Well, there's more to it than that. We take our shoes off because shoes pick up the dirt of the world. You know, you're walking along the road and there's all this muck and the mud and the slush of the world. We're entering the sanctuary. And because we value this space as a space where we're going to do a different sort of work, we're going to deepen in a different direction in this place. So we have this ritual, we have this gesture of removing our shoes and leaving that which is dirty outside, leaving that which is low outside because we want to uh, practice in this way. Or likewise with taking our hats off, you know, coming into this space. And you could come and you think, oh, it's too cold, I'm not going to take my hat off, which I've many times thought. But what I've found is that actually if it's cold and I have that thought, well, that's even a better reason to take my hat off. Because what's happening in that moment where there's this passionate upthrust of my way, I don't want to take my hat off, that's what I'm imprisoned by. That's what I'm enslaved by. That's what causes me to suffer and where I spread my suffering around to others. And so I'm more inclined to take my hat off. Although sometimes it takes a few moments before I really remember that inclination. So that's the point of of these rituals uh, and to hold them with consistency you know, they only they only work if we respect them and treat them with dignity and and with understanding. Um, I was saying before that sometimes these things work even when we don't have understanding, but that's a tricky balance because it is quite easy to fall into mindless, pointless rituals that can be serving neurosis. You know, oh, I'm part of the Buddhist club. You know, look how well I bow and. Can you tell how beautiful I chant? And, uh, you know, I know all the chants, and so there can be just a whole bunch of conceit and neurosis there. Whereas if we understand, well, then that, that also that brings in a different faculty and certainly has its place and can protect us against, you know, misuse. You know, because you can also misuse rituals and, you know, religion, religious history, of course, is awash with examples of religious authorities abusing people with uh, insisting on performing these pointless rituals. And we've got to be very careful about that. You know, I'm very grateful uh, to, uh, again, to our teacher, Ajahn Chah, for his wonderful example in this and, and how insistent he was on, on mindful, wise use of rituals. And there was one time when some um, Buddha relics had been given to the monastery. Some of you may not uh, know about the place that Buddha relics hold in the Buddhist traditional Buddhist community, but uh, it is held that um, from the time of the Buddha, when his body was cremated, that uh, some of his bones uh, turned into crystal. And even these days, it's, uh, it, it's, it does seem to happen. There's some pretty good evidence that I think it's more associated with psychic powers personally than with purity. But anyway, it does seem to be the case that uh, certain beings, when their bodies are cremated, their bones do turn to crystal and, and, and very, very beautiful and uh, things. And, uh, and it's also said that uh, sometimes these, uh, these, what they call relics by this stage, have the power to multiply. And so anyway, they're held with the greatest reverence and respect and, and people even fight wars over having um, relics, which of course is you know, not very intelligent. 
But even those who are not fighting wars can still get it, you know, a little bit uh, off the point. And, and so some of these relics were given to Ajahn Chah, and, and so he was spreading them around the monastery, at least that's how I remember it, the different branch monasteries. And, but he was very, very clear about how, you know, you don't want to get caught up in, in overly, you know, worshipping these things. You know, these are just things, yeah, and the technical word in Thai is praparomasari rikatat, and not just relics. You know, praparomasari rikatat. And Ajahn Chah was going around the branch monasteries talking about praparomasari rikatat. And, yeah. and but the point he was making was, you know, most people say praparomasari rikatat, and they go, oh, and they bow and they're filled with bliss and and how wonderful it all is. And they say, yes, it's great to have devotion, but remember what we're being devoted towards. We're not just being devoted towards having this precious thing in the monastery, so our monastery is great. We're being devoted towards that which gives us a possibility of increasing freedom, understanding, uh, wisdom, compassion. This is the point of having relics and the point of all the structures and traditions that we have. And, or when we built the first sala, the first uh, dhamma hall at Wat Bananachat, um, the branch monastery where the Western monks live. And somehow the way we constructed it, I forget how it came about now, but we had the shrine in the front there, well, just like this here. And then uh, the senior monk would sit off to one side, Ajahn Sumaita would sit off to one side, and then all the monks were down the side of the hall. And Ajahn Chah came over and he looked at this structure and he was, he was very pleased and, and very impressed. And he said, this is how it should be. He said, when the Sangha gets between the lay people and the Buddha, that's a bad idea. You know, it's like the idea of the, 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 the religious authorities becoming the, the mediator between the lay people and the divine. I mean, he wasn't using that language, but that's basically what he was referring to. He said, that's not good when it gets to that stage. You know, the Sangha should be off to the side like that. The lay community should have direct access to the Buddha. And you know, this kind of wise reflection on the use of, of conventions, uh, religious conventions, I found as a, a great example and, and encouragement to, yes, treat these things with respect, but make sure we don't get enslaved by them. You know, the, the form is there to serve the spirit, you know, not the spirit to serve the form. You know, these, these forms are there to help us cultivate respect, you know, yeah, cultivate devotion. You know, devotion is a... It's a word, but it's, there's a, a meaning behind it. There's a spirit behind it. You know, we, we have to have these words, don't we? You know, I was speaking, I think it was last week, about the, uh, the way of using the, 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 the term original mind and how some of the monks were asking Ajahn Chah, you know, are you talking about the original mind? And Ajahn Chah said, just for the sake of communication, we have to use this word original mind. But original mind is not a thing. It's not a, something you can grasp and make something out of. You know, it, basically, it's a symbol. You know, words are symbols. They're sound symbols. Yeah. When we chant, these are symbols, symbolic ways of showing devotion. Yeah. And what do we mean by devotion? Well, the word devotion itself is a sound symbol. It's a word which symbolizes the spirit of, well, we've all got a feeling for it, haven't it? And that's it. The feeling cannot be directly referred to. One of my 
lovely birthday presents I received today was an update to my, my collection of the, the works of Ajahn Abhinando, although he has entitled the poetry book that, but he, when my birthday, he, there's this little book which he updates and puts a new, few new poems in, and I, I'm very pleased about this uh, little tradition that started. And the favorite one, by the way, was called No Songs, which I, I really, the last line was, we're already at home. I really, I like that. Now, poems, you know, poems, what a, they communicate a spirit that other words don't. It's like, you know, I often think about, like, trying to communicate the beauty of, of the Lake District. Now, are you going to get a geologist to tell you about the Lake District, or are you going to, you know, read Wordsworth? I mean, poetry is a symbolic language, and it touches a part of us that other language doesn't touch. Now, other language has got its function as well. If you're trying to, if a heart surgeon is trying to communicate to his student how to perform surgery, well, he's not going to, hopefully, not going to talk poetry. You know, there's going to be another, <laughs> another language for that. So we need, to, we need to understand the use of the language that we're using. Um, and, and so symbolic language, a lot of us, we didn't get a good schooling in it. You know, we got an excellent schooling, a phenomenal schooling in uh, lineological left-brained language, although my mother this morning, she rang to wish me happy birthday, and she gave me a little Dhamma teaching, as she always does. She, uh, she just read the newsletter. The monastery in Wellington had put out an interview with, with Ajahn Menendo, and they kindly sent it to my mother. She says, you're just like the local minister. Keith, you're too intellectual. <laughs> I said, okay, mother. <laughs> Thank you for the encouragement. <laughs> So, uh, <laughs> but uh, understanding the language that we use, um, and you know, the mis- mis- misunderstanding can happen. You know, just because we don't understand something doesn't mean to say that the language is wrong. You know, like with ritual. Yeah, I think I started off by saying, you know, it took me a very long time to get a feeling for the Buddhist ritual. I wasn't schooled in this way, so of course I didn't like it. Of course I felt resistance. That's natural. But that doesn't mean to say that the language has not got something to communicate. You know, the first time you read Ajahn Abhinando's poems, you may not get them. Maybe you've got to read them in German. Apparently, when you read them in German, they are quite different. I mean, but it's always, it's always very useful if you can speak a foreign language. You, know, you come across these um, kind of examples uh, of how, if you don't understand, or you get something wrong. I mean, as, as a junior monk in Thailand, you know, I was busy trying to learn the right language. Monks don't speak the same language as lay people. They have a, a special language. And, you know, for instance, on this occasion, I wanted to say, I'd like to use the telephone. But uh, literally what you say is, your reverence wishes to use the telephone. And so I'm mumbling and trying to say, Atama Paap. And they all fell about laughing because I said, your reverence wants to use the pineapple. (laughs) I meant to say Torah Sap, but I said Sapalot. With languages like that. I'm 56 today. Now, if I was speaking in Italian, it would be Cinquanta Se. Is that right? 
Chinchwantasay, okay? Or if I was speaking Thai, it would be Hasapok. Now, you're going to tell somebody, oh, you're Hasapok. I say, I beg your pardon. I mean, Hasapok. It doesn't mean anything, does it? It doesn't mean anything, Hasapok. He knows what Hasapok means. Tango. Hasapok, Hasapok. I mean, it's like going goo goo gaga, isn't it, to somebody? Goo goo gaga, you know, Hasapok. It doesn't mean anything. Because what? Because you don't understand language. Well, it's just the same with ritual language. Bowing, anjali, offering candles, incense, chanting. It's ritual language. It's a language that if we don't understand it, we don't get the message. It's that simple. But just because we don't get the message straight away doesn't mean to say that there isn't a message being communicated. How to be susceptible to the message of spiritual language. I think that's the question. So thank you very much whoever wrote this question this evening. And thank you for your attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well.